Welcome to Vertical Church. My name is David. I am the pastor here. And it's so great to have some of our new guests, some basketball tournament people with us. I, I love to see that. We're going to open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. We're in a series called Called Out. And if I can be totally honest and transparent with you, I approach this week with this chapter with a little fear in my heart, a little uneasiness. But as I studied this chapter all week long, I came away feeling refreshed and emboldened and just empowered by the message that God has for us. And I trust the same thing for you today as well. 1 Corinthians 14, we've been here in, in 1 Corinthians for a while now. We started this series at the very beginning of February, and we've just been going through one chapter at a time. And we're in part two of three talking about spiritual gifts right now. Spiritual gifts. Like we saw last week in chapter 12, we looked at spiritual unity with gifted diversity. And we talked about how ironic it was that in this topic of using your spiritual gifts in the church, ironically, it can be a controversial issue for people in the church. Um, sometimes we have differing opinions on this and people will actually not get along with this one. Um, next week, we're going to be in chapter 13 on Mother's Day, and we're going to look at the supremacy and just the primacy of love in everything we do. Without love, we have nothing, no matter how gifted you are. So we'll be looking at that next week. And this week, we're in 1 Corinthians 14, and this is where Paul really lays a lot of the ground rules. You know you have to have ground rules, right? Like, when, whenever you're playing a game or a sport, like, it's always good to kind of establish where we're at, where we're going with this. And we're going to dive deeper into the purpose of the spiritual gifts. It's not going to be easy to miss the emphasis that Paul has today. Because Paul actually says seven times in this chapter his main point, the main purpose of the spiritual gifts. And it's to build each other up. It's to build up the church with love. In Corinth, they actually were abusing one of their spiritual gifts in particular. They were looking at the gift of tongues, and they were using it really to elevate themselves. It was getting a little out of control, out of order, and it was lifting themselves up, and it was missing the purpose to build up each other. We can't do that as a church. And before we dive into the text, I also want to just say... We've seen in Corinth again and again different areas where they were missing something. They got, maybe they got off with pride. Maybe they got off with a lack of unity. Maybe that was a sexually immoral problem. But every time they were missing, their identity is in Jesus Christ. And the very outset of this series we saw in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, we see that because of him, you were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. And that is the answer to all of the problems in the church of Corinth. And it's our answer too. Because just like the church at Corinth, we can be prideful. We can show disunity. We can actually think incorrectly. And we can get off on stuff too, just like Corinth. But we have to remember, who are we? If you know Jesus as your Savior, you have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus. If you are a member of the church, just like the church of God here at Corinth, you have been given a gift, you have been given a purpose that is bigger than yourself. 
So you're no longer just aimlessly wandering throughout this life trying to figure out what your next goal is, what your next attempt is. We have a mission, and it's to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I hope that gets your blood pumping a little bit. I hope it gets you really excited and juiced up because that's who you are in Jesus Christ. That's who he's called you out to be, and that's who we all have to be to really live to the fullest, to live our life to the fullest that God has for us. So that brings us to the topic of the day. The Corinthians are looking at tongues. It's a little out of control, and Paul is going to actually address that, and he's going to talk about prophecy. And he's going to compare and contrast the two. So this sermon is different than the normal sermon that you would hear here at Vertical, simply because the passage is a little bit different. 1 Corinthians 14, more so than really any other chapter in this book, is like a list of rules and setting some order in place. So we're actually going to have to define some things and like go through some, some just basic principles of establishing what is tongues, what is privacy, prophecy and how does it fit within this whole context of building each other up in love. Let's look now at the text. We'll start in chapter 14, verse 1, and I'm going to read the first 19 verses for us. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and a speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you were eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also, and I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words 
in a tongue. All right, so before we even go any further, let's just address the elephant in the room first. And that is, are tongues still a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit to the church today? We got to talk through this. Like I said at the outset, this can be a controversial subject for people in the church. It shouldn't be a controversial subject. We talked about this last week a little bit as we introduced it. There's differing opinions on this, and really good men and women of God like, will take a different position on tongues, and I have no problem with people coming to a different side on this one because it's not crystal, crystal clear. But I'm going to do my very best today to interpret the Bible and to preach the Bible to you. And um, everything that I say, I want you to know, is coming from the authority of God's Word, and it's my interpretation of God's Word, and I would encourage everyone to seek this out and to study this topic for themselves. You definitely will want, on this secondary gray issue, to have a look in Scripture yourselves to see if what I'm saying is so. But are tongues still a gift? If the answer is no, tongues have ceased... First question you may be having is, well, why would he even be spending a whole week in chapter 14 (laughs) preaching this sermon if if there are no rules to follow or tongues have ceased? So some of my brothers and sisters in Christ that I have grown up with that have been huge spiritual influences to me, some of you in this room would call yourself a cessationist, meaning you believe that tongues have ceased. So let me explain that position first. I used to be a cessationist. And uh, a lot of, like I said, of people that I have grown up with have talked through this. I've talked with people on both sides, but I'm very well versed in this position for sure. So let's look. Why would you be a cessationist? Why would you say that tongues have ceased? And why do Christians differ so much? Well, in Acts chapter 2, when you first see tongues, this is at Pentecost, They were known languages, all right? These are known dialects. And the people who heard the tongues, they listened to the preaching of the gospel and they heard it in their actual natural native tongue. There was no need for translation. It was just, I'm hearing them speak in my tongue. That was Acts 2. And a lot of times our churches will say, well, look, tongues came in Acts 2 for two specific reasons. They came to give the gospel to these Gentile nations that would not have understood. And secondly, they were given as a sign to the Jews that God was doing a new work, right? I mean, you just follow, this is, this is, the, this is, this is biblical, this is true. Like, this is where tongues came from in Acts chapter 2. And they would say tongues were had a specific purpose for a very specific period of time. And a lot of cessationists, not all cessationists, um, would go to 1 Corinthians 13. So if you want to just back up with me to 1 Corinthians 13, the biggest proof text that's in the Bible that a person who would hold this position would have is in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So they'll take this passage, they'll even jump ahead into 1 Corinthians 14, and there's a couple hand-selected verses. They'll look at verse 21 and verse 22, and they will point out that tongues were for this specific period of time for those two specific reasons. The problem with that is, when you look at 1 Corinthians 13, it says it will pass away, for we know in part, verse, verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So what is the perfect that will come, right? I mean, this whole thing hinges on what that really means. And a lot of people will say, this is the closing of the canon. This is when God has ended his ministry through the Holy Spirit to speak through the apostles and the closing of the, the New Testament is now finished. There's no more scripture being recorded. That is when the perfect is coming, the teleon there in the Greek. But when you look at the text, it's really a little harder to really come to that. And I personally can't get there myself because look at verse, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That verse 12 is talking exactly about verse 10. This teleon, the when the perfect comes, it seems from the text to be pointing out this is when we're actually glorified. This is when we're with God, the final consummation. Everything has come full circle. We have our resurrected body now, and we're seeing face-to-face -face with Christ. And if you're going to make that position that the teleon, when the perfect comes, is actually just when the closing of the New, Can New Testament canon happens... You also have a lot more problems that come in the equation. For one, well, prophecy ceases and knowledge ceases. And it was, this would put us in a weird position where knowledge has now ceased. The knowledge is over. We got all the knowledge we need. So like now that we have the full entirety of Scripture, we would almost have more information and more knowledge than even the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to necessarily go there. So when you look at the text, and let the Bible speak for itself, it's hard to get that position from 1 Corinthians 13, which is why back when I was in seminary and I was still a cessationist, I didn't take this position off of 1 Corinthians 13, not all cessationists do. I took this position just from the greater context of church history, okay? And then you start kind of jumping through some hoops grammatically, and you look at, if you want to look at verse 13, or chapter 13, as for prophecies, they will pass away. That's a different verb for as for tongues, they will cease. There's actually two different Greek words there. And then you start saying, okay, well, this powo, this means it will die a slow death, almost like a battery fading out. And when you look at the greater context of church history, you can see that 50 years after the book of 1 Corinthians, when we have this letter to Corinth, it's not inspired by Scripture, it's not in the Bible, but you see this letter that was written by the church of Corinth. Tongues weren't even mentioned at all, okay, 50 years later. And the last time you see tongues in the New Testament is Acts 19. And, and that was pretty much it, besides this time in 1 Corinthians when it was more of an abuse thing and it was actually a problem. So you can take this position, yeah, God spoke to the Gentiles to give them the gospel. And God gave a sign to the Jews that he was doing a new thing. So you can take that position from like, almost an argument out of silence from the entirety of New Testament, and many solid Christian friends of mine take that position. But it all goes back to, are we going to really trust God's word and take it at face value? And everybody's going to have to, again, come to their own conclusion on this. But I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe that what God says in his word is real, and even if I don't totally understand it, I believe we should live our lives based on that. So 
Today, I know we're talking about a controversial subject, but I believe this is upbuilding for the church. And I believe if we have a better, more clear understanding, a balanced approach in this, God can use us in even a greater way. As I said, many churches will just, because it's a controversy, many churches will just ignore this passage, or they, or they will just kind of like just move on and just try to, try to just, yeah, ignore it, just do something without it. Other churches will take tongues, and they will, they will do the same thing the Corinthians did. They will uplift themselves, and they will abuse them, and they will highlight them to a greater degree than they need to be. But we have to stay objective, and we can't just read the easy solution um, into what's going on in Corinth. What's going on in Corinth is different than just a spoken foreign tongue that can be translated into another language. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2, back into our original chapter, says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. Do you see the difference there? For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. And that would be very similar to what you see in Romans 8 verse 26. Romans 8 26, Paul says that likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. That's the picture that I see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So I would call myself a continuationist because I believe the gifts are still given by the Holy Spirit, not because it's easy, not because it's more fun, not because I like to have arguments, but just simply because that's what I see in God's Word. To me, it's not just, is this something that's going to highlight myself? Is this something that's going to make our church more spiritual? No, it's not about us. It's about God. It's always about bringing glory to God. And if he explains that in his passage, and this chapter, chapter 14, is here for our church, we need to take it at face value. So I believe prophecy is still a gift and that tongues are still present in the New Testament church because of the authority of God's word that I put above emotion and because of the sufficiency of God's word that I think you have to put above experience. That leads us now to the text again in verse 1. Back to verse 1 where we find out, first of all, point 1, this is the first point in the whole sermon, earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. Earnestly desire the gift of prophecy. That's point number one. You see that in, verse, in, the, in these first five verses. Verse three says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So why don't we go ahead and talk about prophecy now? Um, and this is, this is another confession of mine. For a long time, even prophecy was a scary word for me. I was confused by that word. I'm really hazy with what does that actually mean because we can clearly see that prophecy is an even greater desired gift than tongues. I mean, that's black and white. And prophecy is still, still around, obviously, but what does it mean? What does it look like for you and for me right now? Many Christians are like this. They don't want to sound crazy. They don't want to come off as super spiritual, so they just try to pretend that it's not there. I mean, they're just like my boys do when I ask them to go, go to bed. 
They, they hear something they don't really necessarily want to hear, so they just pretend like I didn't say it, and they just do their own thing. We can't do that. So let's not take my word again for it. Let's just look at the scripture, study it for ourselves, and let's go ahead and make a list of, what's, of what prophecy is. So first of all, prophecy, according to the Bible, it's not foretelling. It's more of a forthtelling of the truth of God in an upbuilding way. It's not really predicting the future. Why do I say that? Well, verse 3, it gives us a pretty solid description of what we're talking about here, right? One who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So there's nothing really about predicting the future right there in that threefold instruction. It's encouraging, it's comforting, and there's nothing about the future. Secondly, it's not powerful preaching either. It's not really just preaching, okay? So the word for preaching is keruso. It's to boldly proclaim a message from the king. And all throughout the New Testament, we see prophecy and we also see preaching and teaching as different things. They're always different in the list. Um, Philip's daughters in Acts 21 prophesied. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, you see that women are also told to pray and prophesy in the church. So preaching and teaching is always categorized differently. Ephesians 4.11-12 through 12 really spells that out. God has given the gifts to the church. Apostles, prophets, preachers, teachers, evangelists, all for the upbuilding of the church. So it is a different thing. It's different than just simply preaching. Number three, and this is a very important one, and this is where a lot of people actually get mixed up and have a lot of problems with tongues, with prophecy, is because they're putting in this same category as Scripture. Well, Scripture has ceased. God's not giving us any more of his word. So how could we actually say prophecy is still around? Well, here's the thing. Prophecy, according to God's word, has less authority than Scripture. And that's also consistently spelled out. If you, have, if you have a prophet who actually gives a word of prophecy, it's supposed to be weighed. It's supposed to be tested. It's not the same as Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, very, very much so, um, explains that. The authors of Scripture always use their apostleship when they're trying to establish their authority and say, hey, look, you need to listen to this. This is coming from God's word. They claim to be an apostle not a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets spoke directly, thus says the Lord. So prophecy in the Old Testament, again, this is where it gets confusing, is a lot different than prophecy in the New Testament. By the time you reach the time of Jesus Christ and here in the early church, the Greek word prophetis is not talking about a direct revelation from God. It's actually more of an overall general message that you receive from another source. So it's not the same word. It has less authority than Scripture. Agabus prophesied to Paul, again in Acts 20, 21, and he said that the Jews, if you go to Rome, the Jews will bound you and hand you over to the Romans. Paul ignored that prophecy of Agabus, right? I mean, if it was a direct revelation from God, you don't just take it and leave it and go do your own, you do your own thing. Paul was an apostle, and he, he went ahead and did it. And as a matter of fact... Agabus's prophecy that he gave to Paul, which Paul said thanks but no thanks to, was actually only partially true. The, the Jews tried to kill him. They tried to bind him up, but they actually couldn't get to him. Remember, if you remember that story in Acts 21, 
Acts 21. And as a matter of fact, the Romans actually put him in protective custody and delivered him to Rome themselves because there was, the plot was discovered to kill, to kill Paul. So throughout the New Testament, prophecy is clearly not the same thing as it was in the Old Testament. It must be weighed and tested. Again, you see that in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I'll just read this. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So there's going to be good things that come from it. It doesn't mean it's 100% accurate which would have never been said of Old Testament prophecy. So the key here, after going over all, all of this, why is prophecy greater than tongues? Why did, what did we see from the text? Verse 4, back in 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. You should strive and desire to build up people in the church more than you should desire to speak in tongues in the church. This was not going on in Corinth. And as a matter of fact, we don't necessarily have a tongues problem here at Vertical Church, but we still need to make sure that we don't quench the spirit and despise the gift of prophecy. Encouraging words are not confusing words. So, all right, maybe you're thinking, David, I'm warming up to this. I kind of see where you're coming from from scripture's point of view. So tell me a little bit more, though, because I still don't totally understand what prophecy is. Well, this is point two. This is where we're at point two. Prophesy to build up the church, verse 26. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. We went over Anthony Thistleton's definition of prophecy last week, and I talked about how he is a brilliant scholar. A lot of people go with this definition. Here it is. Prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit, combines pastoral insight into the needs of persons, communities, and situations with the ability to address these with a God-given utterance or longer discourse, whether unprompted or prepared, with judgment, decision, and rational reflection, leading to challenge or comfort, judgment or consolation, but ultimately building up the addressees. While the speaker believes that such utterances or discourses come from the Holy Spirit, mistakes can be made, and since believers, including ministers or prophets, remain humanly fallible, claims to prophecy must be weighed and tested. So hopefully that's abundantly clear by this point. But when we focus on Scripture... I don't want you to misunderstand the part of Thistleton's definition that says combines pastoral insight, okay? Because looking at the Bible itself, you see that it's not, you don't have to just be a pastor to actually speak a prophetic word of prophecy into someone's life. Verses 29 and 30, look at, look at verse, uh, well, actually, verse 26, we see the revelation. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. And then verse 29 and 30, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So there's actually more than going on here than just one person speaking at all times. You can see that revelation kind of goes hand in hand with the word prophecy. So we don't have a verse here that says prophecy is fill in the blank, this is it. We see 
that it's encouraging. We see that it's building up. We see that it's a word for, of consolation. But based off of everything we read, I love how John Piper actually describes prophecy. And this is how he defines prophecy. The New Testament gift of prophecy is a regulated message or report in human words, usually made to the gathered believers based on a spontaneous personal revelation from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of education, encouragement, and consolation, conviction, or guidance, but not necessarily free from the mixture of human error and thus needing assessment on the basis of the apostolic teaching and mature spiritual wisdom. This is why Wayne Grudem just says, it's a spontaneous spoken word that you give to another Christian. This is where you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you and leading you to speak life into someone. That's what it is. That's what prophecy is. And if that's the definition of prophecy, I have a whole bunch of spiritual brothers and sisters that I have grown up with who would have called themselves cessationists that in the church, they spoke words to me that I remember as a 12-year-old, as a 14-year-old, just growing up in the church that spoke encouraging truth into my life that affected me, even on Sundays, okay? I mean, I, I remember these guys by name, Denny McAllister, Dave Anderson, Dave Whitmer, Ed Crisp. I mean, the list goes on and on. You cannot underestimate the value and the importance that you hold as a member of the church, to speak the truth of God that the Holy Spirit has prompted you to say into someone else's life. And if, you've, if you're speaking to someone of the, the, the next generation, a younger brother or sister in Christ, you have no idea what God can do with that. You really don't. I remember as a kid all the things that I learned in church my dad was the biggest one for sure. I learned so much from my dad and from my mom. I'm so grateful for all the things they said to me. But I think about all those words, encouraging words that I was, was told as a young kid growing up in church. I don't remember the specific words, but you know what? I do remember how they made me feel. I remember they spoke truth into me, and I knew they loved me. I knew they cared for me. And I knew they were sharing from their heart what they believed to be true from God's word. They were giving me a spoken word from the Holy Spirit. And you can never underestimate the value and the importance of that in the church. Do you see why we can't be scared or confused and let this be a hazy topic in our minds? We can't despise this gift. And sometimes we despise it by just not talking about it and being scared of it or confused by it. We can't afford to do that because we have a job to do. It's part of our God-given role. It's part of our identity in the church is to actually love others, encourage others. Don't elevate yourself by abusing gifts, abusing the gifts of tongue, abusing the gift of prophecy. You don't have to tell somebody, oh, I have a word from the Lord, and I'm going to just go in it that way and elevate yourself. That's not really necessary, is it? Do you ever see in Scripture it telling you to do that? No, you don't. Instead, we are to speak words of consolation, encouragement, and edification and build up each other. You can do this with the gifts of serving and mercy and administration, all those gifts we talked about last week, but you can also do it, every single one of us, we should earnestly desire the gift of prophecy so that we can speak truth into each other's lives. And if we're a church that does that, 
When people show up on Sunday to have an encounter with God and they walk in these doors and they meet a room full of people who want to get to know them and love them and care for them and encourage them, God's going to use this church. You should be so welcomed, you should be so loved when you come to Vertical Church that you're just like, these people are different. And then these people want to get to know me. These people are asking questions to me. I don't feel like I'm just showing up and serving and just pouring myself out. I don't feel like I'm just coming to church to actually just be fed and be nourished and that's it. There's more to the church than just coming and experiencing everything for yourself. We are to come to church to use our spiritual gifts. And yeah, sometimes it's setting up chairs and it's leading in worship on the, on the stage. Other times, it's earnestly desiring the gift of prophecy so that you can speak truth into someone's life and you can uplift them and encourage them. You can make a difference in each other's lives by investing in them. They may not always remember what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel. The final piece of this chapter is our third point. And this is our third point is do all things decently and in order. And this is where it's going to get a little bit more technical because Paul is going to literally give the rules for tongues and for prophecy when you are gathered as a church body during the worship service itself. Okay, so verse 27, it says this. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at the most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If you want to jump ahead to verse 39, verse 39 says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but in all, all things should be done decently and in order. That's where we're getting this. This is why we're actually laying out the rules. Um, so the rules for tongues, yes, no more than two or three. One person at a time, you can see that there. If you can't interpret it yourself, you should pray that you can interpret. So hopefully if you're going to be speaking in tongues, if it's not just a personal thing between you and the Holy Spirit and the God works in a, in a mighty way that you do speak, you should, it should be interpreted so people know what's going on. But if there's no interpreter there, you should keep it to yourself. Keep it between you and God so that you can Grow in your relationship with God. It's not necessarily for the whole church if there's no one there to interpret. Number four, the message should edify the body and it should be done in the context of love. You can see that in the greater context of all these verses. Those are the five rules I would say for speaking in tongues. Prophecy, again, no more than two or three, one person at a time. Number three, verse 32 says, you weigh it and you test it. And point number four, one more rule that's easily taken out of context is in verse 33. Look at verse 33. This is where it really gets tricky. You can see why I was like afraid when I first opened this chapter. Uh, for, uh, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for the woman to speak in church. See why we didn't do this on Mother's Day? (laughs) 
I'm, I'm half kidding because I love how we can actually describe spiritual gifts in chapter 12, look at the rules in, in chapter 14, and then come back and really nail the primacy and uplift why it has to be done in love and cap it out next week on Mother's Day. But here's the thing. People who don't know God, people who don't trust the Bible and don't have a relationship with God to where they actually know that the Bible loves women, the Bible has truth for us today, but it was written 2,000 years ago. We're translating it into another language. People who don't take all that into account, they'll isolate a verse like this, they'll rip it out of context, and they will say, hey, look, see here? The church doesn't care about women. The church puts women down, and they rub it in their faces. Talk at home, woman. <laughs> That's not what we have here when you're looking at the greater context of this passage. Because Paul's describing the rules for prophecy, and he's saying prophecy must be weighed and it must be tested. And if in the local congregation gathered, there's a spoken word of prophecy to the whole church, it's actually the job of the leaders of the church, the elders of the church. And if you look at the greater context of the New Testament, the elders of the church should be men. Just like in Genesis 1, Men are equal with women, but they have different roles, right? They are given distinct, different gifts and roles by God. Has nothing to do with equality. Has nothing to do with the fact that God doesn't put women the exact same epitome in the, in the elevation of his creation, men and women, but they have different roles, so the elders of the church, the leadership of the church should be the ones, if there's a spoken public word in a congregational setting, they should be weighing and testing that. It shouldn't actually be the ladies. That's all Paul is really saying here. We can't make this say something that it's not saying. Galatians 3.28 says, says a great word on this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, I think about women in the church. And our church has a ton of strong ladies who are leaders and who organize things and who administrate things. I mean, my wife, Julie, is my right-hand person. She, she makes sure all the details happen. She reminds me of things every week that I missed and that I didn't remember. And this church would be, wouldn't be half of what it is without the ladies in this church and the women in this church who lead and serve and uplift and glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Let all things be done decently in order. That's what Paul is saying. These are the rules he lays out. Use your gifts and pursue all of the truth that God has for you. Don't despise one. Don't abuse one. Put everything in balance. So like the Corinthians, you were called out. We are called out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. We are called out not to abuse certain gifts in the church, but to have a balanced approach. Be grateful for the gifts you have. Use them to the fullest. Rejoice that others have different gifts than you. We talked so much about that in chapter 12. And what a beautiful picture of the church, the body of Christ, where we all bring something different to the table. All to uplift one another. Make love primary, the primary aim in all things. Without love, no matter what you say, what you do, you're actually wrong. 
you can't do it without love, muster the courage to speak out what the Holy Spirit leads you to say, when he prompts you to say something, know that that person needs to hear it. Far too many people go to church, they serve in church, and they just feel, at the end of the day, they almost feel like wasted because they've poured so much out. And maybe they weren't thanked, maybe they weren't appreciated, maybe they was just overlooked. Sometimes it's simply saying, thank you. I appreciate that you did this. And you brighten someone's day, you let them feel the value that they bring. We have to be a church that uplifts one another, that builds each other up, because that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14. If you disagree with everything I said about tongues and prophecy, that's fine. You can, we can agree to disagree, and it's not an issue of separation at Vertical Church. It's just not. It's too big of a gray area. But you can't miss the main point of the text, and that is to build each other up. That's what Paul is telling us to do. I don't want you to miss out on living your life on mission for Jesus to the fullest. So assess how you are doing. Are you ever speaking up to people? Are you, ever, are you just kind of sitting in, keeping to yourself? We need to be communicating with each other, even, even throughout the week. Sending text messages, sharing a Bible verse. Don't be afraid. Don't be confused. Open up your mouth and build up each other. Do it all out of a pure heart. It's not about looking spiritual. It's about building each other up. I love the chemistry that the Bible has. And Paul is saying this. It's clear. It's right here in front of us. We've got to take this home. We have, to, we have to put this into action. And you know what? He's not the only author of Scripture that says the same thing. Peter, at the end of his book, 1 Peter 4, when he's talking about the spiritual gifts, he says pretty much step for step what Paul says. And this is how I want to close it out today. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen.